0: All right, so I'm going to ask Kevin if you would come up here. I said uh, we're going to do a couple of things that have never been done in an interview with Kevin DeYoung. And one of which is, uh, this won't take the whole time of our Q&A. We'll get to some of the questions you guys asked. But I had this idea, um, since we're sitting down with Kevin DeYoung, yes, the pastor, but also an author. Um, sort of like inside the actor studio with Lipton, what's his name? Don't know. James Lipton? Hmm. A strange fellow on PBS. Mm. Uh, so this is going to be a little bit of inside the author's studio with Kevin DeYoung. I want to go through uh, a number of books that he's written and ask him, what's the background here? What was the <clears throat> impetus in writing it? And what was the, the aim uh, that he was hoping to accomplish with it? And so he actually has a maybe two or three before this one, Just Do Something, um, that we're not going to reference, but you can find them on Amazon if you'd like. But just picking up here, uh, so Kevin, you wrote this little book, Just Do Something. What was behind this? What was the, um, the impetus for it? What were you hoping to a- accomplish with
1: it? I had, um, that came out, I think, in 2009. <clears throat> I had many years earlier, I think when I was even a seminary Intern before I graduated, I had done a Sunday school class on discerning God's will. Had read some of the Jerry Sitzer, Friesen, some of the some of the stuff that was out there. <clears throat> I had had teaching when I was in seminary from my pastor there, just on some will of God stuff. And somehow, you know, I just imbibed what a lot of people imbibe, which is. I need to sit around and wait till God tells me exactly what to do. And I started hearing it and reading some of it and then trying to teach some of it. And it was very freeing. And then when I pastored University Reform Church starting in 2004 with a lot of college students, you can imagine that's just a perennial question. What do I do with my life? How do I know God's will? And so I had written a couple of books with Moody and I said, I want to write a little book on finding God's will. And they sort of hemmed and hawed and said... Eh, lot been there, done that. Lots of, mm. lots of books on finding God's will. And I said, well, he, here's my hook. Just do something. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell them, stop trying to find God's will. And God said, oh, that's a little bit different. So uh, well, <laughs> and and it's and a very su- short
0: book. And your subtitle is very different. Do you, yes. you have it memorized? No, I don't. How to make a decision without dreams, visions, fleeces, impressions, open doors, random Bible verses, casting lots, liver
1: shivers in writing in the sky. It's a good subtitle. That's and the picture, I, you know, most people don't realize authors don't they don't, you don't get, a, get a say. Yeah, they don't get a say in the, the cover. They can veto some things, but that I don't you probably can't see it, but if you've seen it before Man sitting in a chair. Yeah, what what is it? I had to ask them, what is this exactly? Well if he's look, not doing anything. I know there's little, but hold it up. Have you ever noticed this? Let me see. (laughs) There's little things right here. Those are speakers. This with the subtitle is a drive-in movie screen. He's like waiting for the movie of his life to start and nothing is Uh, happening. That was lost on the layers, but yeah, Yeah. Layers layers. All right, moving
0: on. Now you know. The good news we almost forgot, rediscovering the gospel in a 16th century catechism. What catechism? Why? What were you hoping to accomplish with this?
1: I said to Moody, I want to do a book on the Heidelberg Catechism. And
0: they said, (laughs) said, what's the hook, Kevin? Yeah, what's the (laughs)
1: hook? I said, well, I guess just do something. It's been okay. Well, that's good. We'll give you one bad book or something. Um, (laughs) This is, people sometimes ask what's my favorite book, which is hard to say, but... This might be just because I love the Heidelberg Catechism so much. Uh, I grew up with the Heidelberg Catechism, being growing up in the Dutch Reformed Church. It's one of their confessional standards, 1563. And so when I joined our church as a fourth grader, I had to read through the uh, 52 Lord's Days of the Heidelberg Catechism. I had to memorize parts of it. I had to sit down with my pastor and go through it. And... So it was very near and dear to me and every funeral I think I've ever done has included at some point question and answer number one, what is your only comfort in life and in death and I'm not my own but long body and soul to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. So that was a labor of love. It started out actually um, writing little newsletters back before blog and I would write a little newsletter to my church and I set out to write one on each of the 52 Lord's Days, and then that spun out into expanding that into making it a book. So I love that because I, I love to introduce people to the Heidelberg Catechism who've never read it before.
0: Would you call it a devotional? Is it yeah, it's like a devotional commentary, readings? sort yep. of.
1: Okay. Yeah, two or three page Very chapters.
0: Good. We've really enjoyed that. Uh, don't call it a comeback The Old Faith for a New Day. You edited this book, several people contributed to it. Don't call it a comeback, that sounds familiar. Where does that come from?
1: Don't call it a comeback, we've been here for years. I mean, uh, LL Cool J, I'm very hip. LL now. Cool J. Yes. Uh, yes, Mama Said Knock You Out. Yes. That was not the best title. Um, in some ways, that that was the hardest book. I told myself after that book, I would never edit a book again, which is something that I've held true to. It was more work to edit a book than to write it, but. Why is that
0: hard? Just, getting different voices sounding yeah, getting, similar? Well,
1: there, it's not even putting them into one voice. It's getting people to turn things in on time. It's, <laughs> it's finding that, I won't name any names, but you know, it's some people who even write books really can't write. Or <laughs> like, mm, I'm not really happy with, with the product here, and you have to rewrite and do a lot of work to be happy with the finished product. Uh, I have high standards for my own writing and just how things are, are worded but the idea was let's get a bunch of young guys we were young at the time we were all under 40 and let's write um, some short readable chapters on the major topics in theology justification sanctification worship word of god uh, some hot topics like sexuality in there race and, yeah race. yeah we wanted it to be and don't call it a comeback was hey we're, we're young we're, um, and we believe all of these old things, yeah. and so here's uh, an accessible sort of one-stop guide. That has, of all of these books, sold the worst. So there you go. Really? <laughs> who would you give it to? Um, I'm not trying, oh, who would you give it? I mean, no. I wanted college students to read it. Yeah. I wanted new Christians to read it, new members. Yeah. Hey, I want to know what, what, what are the basics of the Christian faith, and they yeah. could read a book like that. I think it's a great intro to yeah, theological well, topics. You. Uh, what is the mission
0: of the church, co-written with Greg Gilbert? Um,
1: what was the impetus? Uh, l- lots of discussions um, 10 years ago on... So it's interesting how the, the conversation's the same, but it's sort of it's changed in that 10 years ago, people were talking about social justice, but there it tended to be social justice in, in the poor... Now it's more the conversation of social justice and and race or maybe transgender, other sorts of issues, but we were sensing that we were actually in a getaway with several guys, and Greg and I were there, and Justin Taylor was there, who we know works at Crossway, and he said, "Um, basically, I'll buy you a little Caesar's pizza if you two will write a book for Crossway on what is the mission of the church. We eventually did get more than just the pizza, but okay. (laughs) You're not paid that poorly for books, Uh, so we we wanted to help offer what we think is a necessary course correction that some people think the mission of the church is every good thing that a Christian can do as salt and light in the world, Mm. and we were sensing that there's mission creep and mission drift, losing sight of what makes Christian mission uniquely Christian, and that is the proclamation of the gospel, the making of disciples evangelism, discipleship, church planting, calling people to this, not to the exclusion of good works that adorn the gospel, but saying that those things are not the purpose for which God has sent the church into the world.
0: Is this somewhat a corrective to, let's say, John Stott's view that deeds are one wing of the plane and gospel and conversion is another wing of the plane?
1: Yeah, yes. And so, Stott, who... We've all learned lots from and a great hero in many ways, but in, in that regard, when he took a, a big shift there in his view of Christian mission, we found that problematic. He actually, we, we quote this in the book, I mean, he has one line where he says, We have spent, uh, paraphrasing, we have given altogether too much attention to the Great Commission. Um, and he, he's not saying it's not important, but he was arguing that we haven't done, uh, given enough attention to mercy ministry and social action and the other wing of the bird, and we don't think that's a particularly helpful analogy or helpful way. So th- this has been, all, a lot of the books are controversial in different ways, but that's been the most controversial among people that we, in our circles and friends and people that, that responded to it and didn't agree with it. No, I think it's great. Uh,
0: the hole in our holiness. If I remember right, this got a book of the year cover award or something. Didn't the cover get a, a yeah, an award? maybe I yeah so. there was
1: some something. It's a good good cover. I had nothing to do with it. <coughs>
0: What's the impetus here? Um,
1: the hole in our holiness. John Piper did tell me one time you need to stop with the cute titles. So <laughs> well, that's pretty good. The hole in our holiness. Him, yeah. So. Uh, This was um, in the throes of a lot of debates that were were going on on the blogosphere and elsewhere and have continued to some degree, but have abated a little bit regarding sanctification. And so as, you know, there's this gospel-centered movement happening and growing and gospel this and gospel that and gospel centrality. And uh, to my vantage point, I think there were some overreactions and some unhelpful explanations in what people wanted, in what people were denying in order to affirm what needed to be affirmed. And so people, I thought, were getting very skittish about, can we even tell people that they ought to be holy? Should we, is obedience, are you legalist, if you, if you tell people to work hard at your sanctification, is that not really gospel-centered? Aren't we all just spiritual failures, and that's the language we should just use and just revel in constant spiritual failure, and I thought, "Mm, that's not getting the whole picture. That's a truncated view of grace, a truncated view of Christ, and I thought if this Reformed resurgence is to be useful over the long haul, it must have as one of its central aims holiness. And I didn't think that we were particularly known for encouraging Holiness, mm-hmm. and sometimes prominent spokespersons sort of flouted their unholiness yeah. in a way that was unhelpful.
0: If someone reads this and you suggest a, a book past this on holiness, what would that book be? J.C. Ryle. Okay, so I thought you'd say. Yeah,
1: I mean, J.C. Ryle is way better than Kevin DeYoung on, on holiness. It's well, a great but it's book. thicker, it's yeah. older,
0: yeah. and so this really serves a really yes. good purpose. Jerry Bridges,
1: of course, I mean, is, he has some classic books on holiness too.
0: All right, Crazy Busy, subtitle, a mercifully short book about a really big problem. So here's the second surprise. <laughs> oh uh, you and I are going to go sit down and we're going to watch a video. Oh, is Do you know it? what video it is?
1: There's one of two it could be. I'm not sure which okay, one it is. let's go see. Hit play.
2: Kevin, you've got this new book, Crazy Busy, published by Crossway. We're really honored to be publishing it. And I uh, thought maybe in this interview conversation it would be helpful to just talk about one of the things that I know for a lot of us is a huge problem. That's email, email coming in, email going out, mm-hmm. um, text messages, all those sort of thing. Facebook, you know, Twitter direct messages. How do you handle all the email you get like in a given day?
1: Yeah, it can be a challenge. You get a lot of correspondence some of it you want some of it not as much but you just got to try to set priorities like how many
2: would you get in one day
1: maybe a uh, hundred or hmm. more than that but uh, you know you just got to set priorities and which like ones you
2: percentage wise how many of those would be okay i've got to respond to these
1: you know there's probably fifty percent that you can just pass on right away and then there's like an another to an
2: assistant or something
1: yeah yeah and then another you know half of the ones I'm, that are, I'm saying like, like
2: if you had good friend not best friend but like a good friend from a distance or something how many of those emails would you answer Would you say
1: i mean if it's a if it's a friend i, I try to answer emails from friends that's part of being a good friend i think friends stay in touch or mm-hmm
2: yeah, I just got an email here to you that says, oh, hey, brother, just checking to make sure you got my note, and don't see any response or anything. For me, that
1: was you emailing? Yeah.
2: This is like 11.56 uh, on Sunday night.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe I missed that, or maybe my, my assistant looked at it. I, I, get, I get a lot of emails. Yeah. So.
2: Did text yeah. you the same thing, too?
1: Um, so, yeah, I, I don't, don't know, know if so, you're. Well, some, sometimes I have the, the buzzer off. Yeah. I, don't, I don't have the ringer on. I don't, I don't get every yeah text.
2: But like, how do you I handle? Remember. Sorry, gonna interrupt. No, go ahead. Like, just. I mean, that's your struggle. You struggle with busyness. Other people struggle with other things. And, but how how does that fit with like you've got friends who aren't as busy who,
1: um, I, uh, yeah, the, I guess the interviews. It's like a little different turn than I thought, but mm. I, I, uh, mm-hmm. I know people are, some people are busier than, right. than other people. I In guess. different
2: seasons of life where yeah. we're busy, yeah, you absolutely. know,
1: do you do FaceTime? I mean, maybe with grandparents or something. I, yeah. I don't, I don't not know. Not like friends. I mean, maybe, I mean, yeah, no, not, not usually my, not like really good yeah. friends.
2: So pastorally, how do you handle that situation of like, you're so, so busy and everybody wants your wisdom, you know, write a book, write a blog post, yeah. give this counseling thing, come speak at this conference, fly over to the UK and speak at this conference because everybody wants to hear it. And you've got like a friend, <clears throat> the guy who's not crazy busy, who wishes he yeah. had Kevin DeYoung's life and he was so crazy busy and not like a great speaker or a great intellect but you know maybe like a little bit above average but still okay. it's not as crazy busy because not Trying as many follow. people ask yeah. him how do you like pastorally how do you handle that when somebody <laughs> just feels like okay mm-hmm. i thought we had mm-hmm. like a real good friendship and then i just don't hear from like, you and that sort of thing uh,
1: i guess i'd <clears> have to i know I'd wonder about the friend you yeah. know just whoever whoever the right. friend is sort of maybe what what's going on and that friend his or her heart and i'm not going right to the motives mm-hmm. just just wondering why does this friend have these desires and i mean depending on the friend justin i just maybe ask no, him when what, you say
2: what is friend the... justin are you are you kind of like are you saying that about me or are you just kind of <laughs> we're just more talking. abstract we're just talking yeah. we're just, trying I to just... keep it abstract no one we're, we're talking and, take it up from the present. and even if
1: even if i said justin I have a lot of friends named Justin, so right. it could be a number of different people. Yeah, you know, I'd have him look at mm-hmm. his schedule, uh, what he's doing. It's possible that you know he's not as busy because he's you know, maybe maybe he kind of fritters a lot of time. You know? I don't know. Maybe yeah. it's a lot of yeah, you know, I, I don't know. You know. I mean, right. we both we both know people that yeah they're like blogging every day, right? right? And they're they're sending emails and videos with. Cats and clowns right. and stuff, and like on Mondays, all all through the week actually. Yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, but I just, I just, I, I appreciate uh, appreciate your friendship.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I have too. I really have, have. Well, um, crazy busy. <clears throat> yeah, thanks for writing it, and yeah. thanks for taking. This is a big chunk of your time, and I know you're crazy busy. And uh, no, that it yeah, it really, it's great. I love working with Crossway. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah, um,
1: good.
2: I'll send your assistant maybe some time so we can maybe um, just hang out for a
1: while. I would uh, I would theoretically really like that. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. We'll,
2: yeah, I'll send we'll, you a text or something.
1: That'd be really great. Yeah, I'll do that. Now, what's the backstory to that video? <laughs> I haven't seen that for several years. That was my house, That was our house in East Lansing, and uh, Justin and Crossway came up to do this video. We made a really cute one with my kids, and doing Talk About Busy, and then Justin had this idea, let's do sort of one like awkward office style shooting, and what you don't know is... I mean, that that those four minutes took us like two hours because we could not stop laughing. <laughs> and we weren't even that funny, but, I mean, it was ridiculous. Justin would keep doing that, look at the camera, and I would just... It, those are like the only four minutes out of two hours that we weren't That's just so absolutely laughing. I don't know how Justin... And of course, we didn't have, we had nothing written out. I mean, it wasn't like a script or anything. It was just sort of, it just kept going and That's funny. riffing. It's
0: great. I've seen the outtakes and your faces are red when you're not actually in the video yeah, that we just saw. Yeah. Uh, well, you're busy, so let's yeah, move so on. Yes, there we go. <laughs> uh, what does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? Impetus, Mm-hmm. aim.
1: That was also, that. that was... In some ways, the most difficult, least enjoyable book that I wrote it's just it's a hard topic, and um crossway had said, I think we really you know we could use a a a really lay level sort of book on this. There's tons being written, and when I said yes, I thought I'd written so much on my blog, I thought I'd be able to pull up fifteen blog posts and kind of stream it together a little bit, and it would it would just be done, but it took a, a. It didn't work like that, and it took rewriting most of it. and And it's not like I'm a. I'm not. I'm not a. A scholar on, on that, I'm not like Robert Gagnon in the book that he's. But written. you lean
0: on that good scholarship. Yeah, so I lean this. on
1: that, and I think all of my books. I mean, I think what I, if I do something well, it's trying to. I'm a translator, taking this stuff and trying to put it so that it's clear and accessible and someone at a church book table can read it. But even in doing that, I, I, I read a lot of a lot of the revisionist books. I read a lot of stuff on Greco-Roman homosexual culture and things that are, are pretty grim. And I wouldn't advise just reading just to try to get up to speed on some of the scholarship. Wasn't there a book, a popular
0: book that came out a little bit before that in some ways this was an answer to?
1: Matthew Vines That's book, yeah. And Matthew Vines leaned on, on James Brownson, who was uh, who I know personally, he's RCA guy. He he's he's probably written the maybe the, the best sort of revisionist scriptural book. I mean I disagree with all
0: of it, but and revisionist would mean just
1: yeah meaning just a revision from the traditional biblical view that the bible sexuality or that the bible does not condemn same sex loving monogamous partnerships
0: so they're trying to keep the bible and homosexuality right
1: and one of the things that that was most clear in writing that book and i have lots of examples of lots of the world's best scholars on this who aren't christians or don't feel the need to to conform their worldview to the Bible, and they're pretty clear, yeah, Paul thinks homosexuality is wrong. Hmm. There, there's no way of getting around this. Um, Bernadette Bruton, one of the, she's a lesbian, one of the, the leading scholars on this, just says that flat out. It's the people that want to say, well, we're, we're, we're with the Bible. I, I mean, I have respect at least for the people who say, yeah, this is, this is our experience. This is what we think is right. And the Bible is just wrong. Yeah, right. Okay. Important book. Uh, Taking God at His Word,
0: subtitle, Why the Bible is Knowable, Necessary, and Enough, and What That Means for You and Me.
1: You know, D.A. Carson had said at one point that he was looking, did he do a blurb on that? Yeah. I don't know, that he was looking for...
0: This little book is highly readable. A highly
1: readable introduction
0: to Scripture's teaching about Scripture. Buy this book, buy the case, and distribute copies to elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, and anyone in the church who wants to understand a little better what the
1: Bible is. Just a little better. A little better. Well. If you know know Don's... He's he's sometimes stingy with his If you know Don's blurbs, yes, there's usually a... This is pretty good. Not this. Yeah, they probably cut out the, uh, well, one could quibble with this or that. that. (laughs) But he had said he was looking for a... What's going to be this generation's J.I. Packer, Fundamentalism and the Word of God? Of course, none of my books are as good as J.I. Packer, but I just wanted to do something that would give uh, a, a brief but accessible, robust defense of inerrancy and an evangelical doctrine of Scripture somewhat on the heels of Pete Enns and lots of, you know, Scripture discussion. So,
0: what I liked about this is that it's it really clear in the theology of Scripture And each of your chapters really does get to the heart and make some application Hmm. uh, for the Christian. Really good. Uh, You wrote a kid's book. I did. The Biggest Story. Subtitle, How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. Am I right that this was first a blog post?
1: Well, yeah, good memory. It started um, like 10 years ago, a Christmas Eve sermon that I did at my church. Uh, I wanted to do something a little different, so I'd written... A story at that point it just went up to Christmas and I said I wish that I had pictures for you but I can't draw but just imagine that it's Christmas Eve or it was maybe but you know you're you're at the fireplace with your kids with your grandkids someone's reading to you a story and so I'd written you know it took me 20 minutes to read through it and it was really to the Christmas story and then some years later I said across I have this story and I put it on my blog before and I said what what if you find an illustrator and, and I, I finish it out, the resurrection into new heavens and new earth. And we looked at a lot of different illustrators. And I said, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't want it to look cartoonish. I don't want it to look Disney. I don't want it to do... And Don Clark just did an outstanding job. I lo- it's bright, it's colorful, it's unique. It's not uh, cartoonish, yet it's not so abstract that you can't tell what it is. Um, Don Clark is a Christian. He's done stuff for Lecrae. He's done stuff for Target. He's done stuff for NASA. He's, he's a very successful in his own right. And so he he did these pictures. And I was telling you earlier, we're actually working on a follow-up that would be the biggest story, storybook Bible or, or something. We don't want to use the same name as Jesus Storybook Bible, but that kind of idea. And we'll have a hundred Bible stories oh, wow. in it cool. with that same kind of writing tone and with Don doing the illustrations again. That's great. And there's uh, a DVD with this? Yeah, there's a DVD that Crossway put together and I, I narrate It's just reading the book and it's, it's putting those pictures to some uh, animation and then there's a little ABC board book for new That's right. new readers.
0: Okay, so we don't have that one here. And I think we're missing another one before this came out, no?
1: There were some little ones that I did with with 10 of those. Okay. Actually, but yeah, that's the, I think the-
0: This is your newest one on the 10 Commandments. Mm -hmm. What was the, you were
1: preaching through Exodus? Yeah, almost all of these books, all of, none of these books here were sermon series turned Mm -hmm. into books. Um, some of them I wrote, and then I preached some of those as sermons. Okay. That that one was started as sermons that then turned into a book. So uh, you are preaching
0: through Exodus. Did you do uh, a sermon
1: per each, commandment? Yeah. Okay. yeah. And um, with Crossway, I've agreed to do, sometime in the years following, to do a book on the Apostles' Creed on the Lord's Prayer, so it'll make a nice little catechesis trilogy.
0: Okay. Neat. Well... That is Inside the Author's Studio with Kevin DeYoung. And Canons
1: of Dort, you didn't coming oh, out. Oh, sorry,
0: sorry, sorry. Hold on. Yes. Uh, so in April, you have one more coming out, uh, Grace Defined and Defended. I don't have the subtitle here. What's that about?
1: Well, yeah, I think that's what a s- 17th century confession can teach us about the gospel or something. It's, um, I'm sure as all of you know, it is the 400th anniversary of the Synod of Dort. Duh, you're, going, yeah. you're planning your parties already. <laughs> and the, um, the canons of Dort were officially adopted in, I forget if it's April or May of, of 1619. So for the 400th anniversary, I have a book, uh, similar to the one of the Heidelberg Catechism, a little shorter, because it's only five heads of doctrine, but um, explaining- Canons of Dort were important for what? They responded to? They, they responded to um, Arminians, the followers of Arminius, a debate within continental Calvinism, and in particular within the Netherlands, on what is the nature of the Reformed faith. If you've ever heard of the five points of Calvinism, now Calvinism really is, it can't be reduced to that, but the, the TULIP, uh, even though the acronym is probably only 100 years old, but the basic idea those five heads of doctrine come from the canons of Dort. So it's a, a real helpful, uh, some very careful, precise theology. Uh, And so I encourage it not so much because I wrote a book on it, but because I think getting into the canons themselves are really important and instructive.
0: Great, look forward to that. All right, inside the pastor's studio now with Kevin DeYoung. Uh, Kevin, you're a pastor. That's your main occupation. Um, You come from... Dutch reform tradition did you were in your toddler years did you know you would be a pastor? When did that happen that you sensed that God was gifting you and leading you towards the pastorate?
1: well it, it, it works differently for everyone, but i I did start thinking about it at an early age, not toddler, but I was maybe maybe around sixth grade I had my pastor who was um, very close to our family and he announced that he was leaving to take a call at another church and okay. was very sad and was crying and came up and sat with him on the platform and gave me a hug and it was very tender and he said, Kevin, I'm just a sixth grader or something, he said, Kevin, someday you're going to do pulpit supply for me. I do not know what that meant. What mm. I thought was I'm going to like put the tissues in there or the, <laughs> the pencils yeah. or <laughs> what supplies do you have in there? It was a phrase that was lost on me. But he said, you're, you're going to preach. And since, since that day, uh, it was always somewhere in my mind. I mean, there were, it wasn't a straight line. There were times I thought, eh, I don't know that I want to do this. But What it, do you think he saw? Have you ever said that to a sixth grader? No. I haven't yet. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm not sure. We were, we were close and we went through, you know, I, since I joined the church in fourth grade or something, which was, which was young for, for that church, and um, he had me read through the whole Heidelberg Catechism and meet with him and went through his, and talked about, it. so maybe, maybe in something in those conversations, he thought. Um, I, I did, I had a little cheating because before I went and met with the elders, my dad, I don't know why he did this, He said, now, Kevin, if they ask you about predestination and free will, like, I'm fourth grade. What elders are going to ask you about this? He said, what you say is that's something of a paradox. (laughs) (laughs) And they asked me, no way. (laughs) And I said, it's a paradox. And they were like, wow.
0: And your destiny was sealed.
1: Yeah, there, there it was. So it, and it just, it seemed like maybe even before then, you know, I was in cadets, it was called in the Reformed Church, which is like Christian Boy Scouts. So the boys were cadets, and you'll like this. The girls, you know what the girls were called? Calvinettes. Calvinettes. Wow. Sweet. They since changed it to gems, hmm. girls everywhere something, a savior or something, but Calvinettes, and, I was, a, and, and I, I was terrible at all the go-karts and all of the Pinewood Derby and all of the knots and lashes and camping, and I didn't, I didn't like any of that back then. And so they would always say, uh, even the leaders sometimes would say, okay, well, we got to do the Bible lesson. Kevin, can you, can you get us through this quickly? So, uh, good leaders, you know, adults, but <laughs> so we can do the go-karts. Um, so I did all of the spiritual merit badges first and then I, like I got to do the knife one and the knots and lashing one and I guess I had, I had an affinity for it. Did you do any teaching or preaching in high school years? I mean, whenever there was the obligatory youth service, it was usually, well, Kevin, why don't you do the little sermon? Kevin, why don't you do the little thing? And then, um... Yeah, even, and then in college I started to, I would preach some at the Holland City Rescue Mission, and okay. so I just, I, and, and I would lead a Bible study, and you know, along the way people affirm things, and I mean, don't think too much of I me, mean, I did lots of, you know, I did stupid stuff, and I was proud, and all the things normal um, kids do, but I guess people saw certain things, and they encouraged me. And what was your major in college? I started out as a political science major and then I switched to religion. I was really into political science and worked on campaigns and worked with my professor on a government textbook and did lots of that and then switched to a religion major.
0: Okay, and then Gordon Conwell, Mm -hmm. then pastoring after that. Yeah. Okay. Um, Let's get into some revelation questions. How would an individual or a church um, get a good diagnosis on their health without hmm. a letter from Jesus. We've yeah. been seeing this really amazing thing of <laughs> Jesus giving a letter to a church. And it's his x-ray, it's his MRI, so we don't have to wonder whether right. it's skewed, it's accurate. Um, and, and since these churches were addressed and since John wrote this and sent this, To my knowledge, no church really has that same kind of benefit.
1: And if you're reading books that purport to give special letters from Jesus, find a different book. (coughs) I think we were talking about this. I think we're meant to read them in their totality. And we were even saying that perhaps it was in the Spirit's wisdom that we don't know exactly. We don't know the Nicolaitans. We don't know Jezebel. We don't know all the particularities so that they are very generally applicable there's probably, there's people in every church and there's churches in every city and churches in every denomination that can fit mm-hmm. any of those. So I think we need to hold very loosely uh, that this is exactly what Jesus is telling us. I, you know, I've been in denominational meetings where they claimed that, you know, here's the, the Spirit's letter to us and it almost has that sort of divine authority, that's a mistake. But I think if we take it humbly in its totality and we ask first of all, what do I need to hear, not what do other people need to hear? Because it's, you know, you read through all of and you're like, that's great, I, I know some churches, they need this. Yeah. Okay, Jesus, what, what do I in particular need to hear? And I, I've found in my life one prayer that Jesus always answers. Fortunately and unfortunately is, would you show me my sin? Mm. And I think if we if we come to any text, but a text like these seven churches, and individually or corporately, really come humbly before the Lord, that He'll make clear to us where we're strong and where we're weak. Okay. Through His Word.
0: Yeah. So word, prayer, keep looking. Anything else? I mean, what
1: would you add to that? Nothing. Okay.
0: Move on. Yeah. Let's move on. Uh, so let's suppose I'm someone who um, does a lot of self-investigation and diagnosis, and uh, I'm, I'm painfully aware of my shortcomings, and that's basically the, in some ways the sum total of my Christian life. Yeah. Um, would you speak to someone like that? in light of the fact that we've been in letters that are doing that, they're diagnosing, they're analyzing. And do we want people with a fragile conscience here to Mm -hmm. put some bigger batteries in their analysis
1: and diagnosis? I have a chapter in the hole in our holiness. I don't remember the title, but it's that holiness is possible. It's not possible for us to be perfectly holy, but it is possible for us to be truly holy. And Turretin and other theologians have used that same distinction. I think when we hear holiness, if we think self-justifying, absolutely no stain, perfect holiness, then we, we don't have that in this life. We, we all fall short and to call for it is to call for legalistic self-righteousness. But if we understand that Romans 12, for example, speaks of pleasing God. And there's more than a dozen times in the New Testament that uses the language of this is pleasing to God. And Paul says to Rome, your obedience is known to all. And Jesus says in the Great Commission, teach them to obey my commandments. If we understand, these are not just theoretical commandments. I mean, instruct you can be holy. Again, not perfectly, but truly. So that's part of it. When I, when I wrote that and then I preached through that, I had some people in my church say, now pastor, I have one guy who's on our staff, now you know I have a very tender conscience and am I going to leave every Sunday in this sermon series on holiness feeling like I might not even be a Christian? Because you know the pastor, he's gonna preach on holiness. I mean, what's worse than that? A sermon series on prayer or evangelism? <laughs> or giving. Or giving. Yeah. <clears throat> And part of it, for any preachers, part of it is our fault because mm. we can preach anything in a way that makes everyone fall short. Mm. You can preach on generosity so that you have a TV, shame on you. You have a car, you could have a bike. You have a bike, you could have, ex- you could have shoes. You have two pairs of shoes, you have one pair of shoes. And you can just go on until you, you pray, you don't pray enough. You're on your deathbed, you'll never think you prayed enough. And it's the not enough sermons, whereas I will tell people so in some of those sermons, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something to convict some people, and I want some of you to know you have permission to think that you're being obedient to this. Do you pray as much as you can? No, none of us do. Some of you are prayer warriors. God is pleased with you in this. So part of it is just having a category that God can be pleased with us. And, and then real quickly, the other thing is assurance is a community project. We are not meant to self-diagnose by ourselves. Mm. And if you have a healthy, functioning gospel church with membership, with discipline, and your elders know you, and they've welcomed you into membership, loosing what is loose, binding what is bound in heaven, they are testifying to the world, to you, before others, Mm. we believe your profession of Christ to be credible Mm. and your life to give uh, credible evidence of that profession. And if you're doing discipline, actually, that you're saying to them and to the world, just the opposite. So as we get closer to Christ, it's generally a rule of sanctification. Those who are godliest feel like they are farthest from Christ. It's the immature Christian. Like when I was in college feeling like, wow, I've grown so much in these four years. I'm not sure how much sanctification's left, you know. <laughs> Better be Wesleyan because we're almost there. Um, Laughter. I know it's not always some Wesleyan, but uh, I think as we get closer, that's when we need other people to say, "I do taste mm-hmm. the fruit of the spirit mm-hmm. in your life." And you know the famous line that for every one look we take at ourselves, it's that. 10 looks at the cross. And, and, and the Puritans themselves even warned against this sort of introspection and constantly peeling away of the onion. One of our pastoral interns years ago said, "Kevin, how do you know when you get up to preach?" That you're, how how can you be absolutely certain? There's not some part of you that's preaching, because you like people to hear you and Mm -hmm. and and look at you and, and I said, I'll let you know when I'm sure of that. Yeah, (laughs) and that's when
0: your your gaze needs to go back to
1: Christ and not. Because I'm I'm not, and and I just pray that whatever of that that is there gets less and less, and that. Christ would be glorified despite what indwelling sin is there in my motives and in my heart.
0: Yeah, and we have Paul's example of that where uh, the Corinthians were judging his motives and he says, I don't even know if my motives are pure. We'll find out when we get to heaven. Yeah, it's a great Uh, text. Yeah, Um, let's talk a little bit about the structure of the seven letters. There had to be more than seven churches in Asia Minor. Why are there seven? Um, Do they have any relationship to
1: each other? in a literary way or a thematic way? Obviously, if you know Revelation, we know that numbers are really important and seven is one of those numbers. And we we say it's a number of completion or perfection. That's, the Bible never gives us, you know, the glossary at the back that says, here's what seven means. But we're just saying, yeah, there's a lot of sevens which seem to signify something like that. So surely that's significant that there's seven Not thirteen. I think we're meant to see the in miniature the experience of churches here, now, there, and everywhere. And as you and I were talking, there there seems to be some pattern that one and seven, Ephesus and Laodicea, are the ones that their message is, is most. Hey, you're get serious. Kind of, are you? you know, with Laodicea, we'll see you're lukewarm. With Ephesus, you're doing this right, but but are you loving people? So it's a kind of jarring. You have two and six, which are the only ones that don't have anything negative said about them. They're the weak, struggling Smyrna and Philadelphia church. Hang on there. You're opposed. You're persecuted. And then three, four, and five in the middle are some form of compromised mixture you look like you're doing this really impressive but you're you're uh compromised with the world so you know the fancy term of a a chiasm which just means like a an x uh, kind of a funnel going in and then going back out I think there's something there what you know what that means for our takeaway other than it was maybe a way to to remember it or for it to be read and then to be recalled later. Yeah. Do you have any? I mean, you studied no, Revelation and, and read that, and you were the one who reminded me of that from Beale's commentary. Yeah, it's commentary.
0: In Greg Beale's big commentary on it. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I would just say it's reflecting the diversity of those churches, right? And and I think um, you almost have a kaleidoscope of uh-huh. good things and bad things, and uh, and probably later churches and later Christians can read that in identify this thing here that thing there um, yeah that's all, that's all I got on that um, is there an overall message or aim for the seven letters as a whole
1: well, I think it's you know what I what I said I think it's the the overcoming there're certainly they're very structured stylized letters a description of Jesus often this is good but I have this against you and then To to the one who has ears to hear, let him overcome. And then here's a gift if you overcome. So I I think the theme throughout all of them is that language of victory. How will you overcome your temptation to compromise with the world? Maybe compromise in sexual morality, maybe compromise in the prosperity of the world, maybe to compromise in the the lovelessness, but will you overcome that as the world is bearing in on you and show yourself to be faithful and victorious in Christ? Okay, good. Um,
0: Let's talk more about uh, that point you made, I think this morning, about um, not assessing a church's health by worldly standards. Um, Three Bs, uh, budgets, um, what else did you have? Buildings. Budgets, buildings, and bodies. Um, so maybe two follow up questions. Why does that seem so common? Why does it why does it seem so easy even for thoughtful pastors to succumb to that? And what would you say to a pastor here who yeah. is fighting I mean to, to use the the language of Kent Hughes's book uh, of not giving in to the ministry success, success syndrome? syndrome? Yeah, that's yeah. a very
1: it's a good book. <clears throat> well, I think we easily fall into that for at least two reasons. The, the more obvious, more nefarious one is just simply the pride that church leaders may have or wanting to convince ourselves that we're important. But there's a, a, a more subtle reason, and, and I think, you know, I've learned this over the years in pastoral ministry, We we gravitate toward that because how else do we know or we think we know that we're doing a good job? Yeah, so it's tangible. It's tangible. Okay. And it's not necessarily that pastors gravitate toward it because you know, they set out to think, I want to prove that I'm better than other people. But I found this when I started in ministry. Okay, my whole life that I could remember was a student. Mm. And everything, and I was a good student. And I always had feedback. I always had people telling me, What I was, how I was doing. It had a letter. You turn this in, you got a letter. And A. You 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 finished it all, you got a number. Three point what or four or whatever it was. There were awards handed out for this. I mean, there was just feedback. You could just know I'm a good student. I did something. I'm I'm and you get into pastoral ministry, and I thought, how in the world do I know that anything matters? And I have so many Sundays, like all of them, <laughs> that I get done preaching and feel like, did that do anything? Yeah. How do I know that this is matter? I mean, and you learn that the, the handshake line, is not a, you know, the sermon you thought was amazing, people don't say anything, the one you know was terrible. Like, Pastor, the Spirit just spoke to me so much. <laughs> <laughs> like, really, I, I had a crisis, and I took, I, I took one hour to do that, and what? Right. <laughs> So we just, so we gravitate toward it because it's something the church is growing. Must, something good must be, the church is shrinking, something, something bad. And I mean, the, the only thing I keep coming, well, not the only thing, but I keep coming back to bigger is not better and bigger is not badder. We need both of those. Some people do look bigger is badder, especially, I, I don't know, if, I mean, certainly in Presbyterian circles. You got a lot of people what it are you must doing mean wrong? That You're compromising.
0: Yeah, right. you're compromising. Right, you're not teaching theology. You're not teaching hard doctrine.
1: Yeah, in the Presbyterian Church we have a saying: We may be small, but we are slow. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> encouraging. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> but but maybe more common is, oh that that pastor and and if if anyone in the church thinks that. Well, Kevin, that's easy for you to say. You, know, you got this or that or books or you speak at conferences. You, you don't know the pastor's heart. I mean, because there's always somebody who's bigger. There's always somebody who's doing, I mean, so it, it's a matter of, of the heart. I remember at T4G one year in getting, you know, seeing, looking at my wife's Facebook feed after David Platt had preached and all these people from our church, my church. Best sermon I've ever heard <laughs> Wow, never heard preaching like that in my life. <laughs> I say, That's you so know great. I can read this
0: boy, <laughs> she was my pastor
1: <laughs> yeah so we we oh. we all have that, and one of the lessons in ministry is is to learn to root for each other and and i the Lord sort of pricked my conscience at. Often praying for revival, and okay, Kevin, do you what if revival starts at the other church? Mm, yes. <laughs> like, oh, I kind of meant revival like here, yeah. <laughs> like lots of people coming to my church. Well, what if it starts with the Baptist or the Methodist, or what if it starts somewhere else? Okay, yeah, I, I want that, right? I think at least I'll pray that I want that
0: there's that story Mark Dever tells of a Puritan senior minister writing to a new Mm -hmm. pastor. uh, And he says something like, I know the vanity of your heart and that you will think, um, you will envy your um, fellow pastors who've been given a larger charge. And he says, "Uh, but when you stand before the Lord Jesus on judgment day, you will think you had enough.
1: Yeah, that's true. scary. It is, it is scary.
0: So we're kind of nearing out of time. I want to get to this topic, which isn't really related to um, the seven churches in Revelation, but I think it's really increasingly important in this age we're living in, and it's about politics. I want to ask about your approach to shepherding your church as a whole or individuals one-on-one in this politically charged and polarized age. Try to be brief. <clears throat> and then who you voted for.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've, I voted Jesus for president. <clears throat> there is a doctrine in the Presbyterian church, which has sometimes been maligned and sometimes wrongly applied, but it has a, a history that goes back to at least the 1500s, loosely called the spirituality of the church, which is, as the name suggests, that the work of the church is to be the spiritual souls of men and women presenting to them a, a Christ to redeem them from their sins and prepare them for a heavenly reality. Now, that doctrine, as it developed, was always clear that that does not mean that the church has no witness to the world or that the church does not speak to issues of the day throughout the Christian tradition and reformed tradition you see all sorts of sermons and messages and speaking to kings and parliaments and such. But the understanding was that the power of the church, I'll give you this without doing my whole ecclesiology course, but the, the power of the church is ministerial and declarative. That's the language they use. Ministerial meaning it is in service to Christ and declarative meaning it is only to declare what Christ has already spoken. So again, in the Presbyterian context, you, um, they're called the courts of the church. The, the session is a court, the Presbytery is a court, the General Assembly is a court. And it's a court because judicial business can happen there, people can be brought up on charges, but it's also a court because it's not a legislature. We are self-consciously not trying to legislate anything new, but only deliberating upon what has already been spoken. Now all of that is sort of ecclesiology in the background to say that when it comes to the pastor or to the church in politics, I think and take very seriously that my role is to speak what Christ has spoken. And no matter how much I might want to tell people as a pastor that I'm now taking off my pastor hat and I'm just giving you my opinion as an American citizen and what I think about this justice or what I think about this immigration plan, the reality is, I cannot separate that in the minds of people. I'm very thankful for Christians being involved in all those issues. When I was in East Lansing, Michigan, Lansing's the capital of Michigan. Surprise, it's not Detroit, it's Lansing. Lots of people there who worked in state government, some on both sides of the the aisle. I, I want Christians in government. I want Christians engaged in all of these thorny issues, bringing to bear Christian principles. And yet I'm mindful that my work is to proclaim the gospel and I want the obstacle to people coming to my church not to be who I think is a good justice or not for the Supreme Court. I want the obstacle to be God's word and the gospel. And I do think that on both the right and the left that we are not nearly as circumspect as we might want to be. And uh, some people helpfully use the language of straight line issues versus jagged line issues. So can you be preaching through a text in the Bible and say abortion is wrong? Yes, you can. You can get it from Psalm 139. You can get it from the Sixth Commandment. You can get it from the book of Exodus. Can you be preaching through the Bible and say that racism is a sin? Yeah, you can get that from Genesis 1, Genesis 2. You can get that from Jesus. You can get that from um, Paul in Galatians. Now, does that mean... Now, jagged line that this policy this candidate is good or this particular thing is wrong it may be that there are better choices than others i'm not saying we we flush our brains out but it does mean that it is very hard to say that is christian and that is not so a check on me as a minister is would i discipline could i would i think that this person ought to be brought up on charges disciplined from the church because No one who is a born-again Christian could be coming to the political conclusions they're coming to. Well, that's a bar where I think I'm going to be very careful. Mm -hmm. And I've had people, as I said to you earlier, on both ends of this, people I respect who have said, look, Trump's a racist, you vote for Trump, you don't care about minorities, how could you? There's no Christian rationale for voting for Trump. And I've had people on the other side say, how could you, you look, one of the two parties is gonna be elected. And if you vote for the other party, you're voting for killing babies. And if you don't wanna kill babies, how can you vote for the other party? So you're gonna vote for Trump or whoever the GOP nominee is. And I think all of those are really important discussions to have. And Christians should be intimately engaged in them. But I don't, th- because I think those conclusions they rely on all sorts of prudential matters of judgment about, about a candidate, about their character, about this or that or what they'll do and lots and different theories of politics. And I just think we need to be very careful. And there are often different ways of approaching the same thing. So caring for the poor is good. You come and say, as people do, knock on my door, will you sign this petition that minimum wage should be increased. You're a Christian, don't you wanna help the poor? Yeah, I wanna help the poor. Well, we can come to different conclusions about whether increasing minimum wage is going to help the poor or not. And we need to allow as Christians that we can come to some different conclusions on that. Even if one conclusion is actually better than another. Yeah. You can have better and worse conclusions that are not necessarily Christian and heathen conclusions.
0: Yeah, that's good. Um, anything you wanna say
1: related to social media in that topic, or social media in general? <laughs> yeah, or, or you can say to I just, I think I was, I was more carefree five, six years ago. Not, you know, irresponsible, I hope, but anyone out there, especially people and, you know, pastors and leaders at the church to think that, well, I can just have one persona on Twitter mm-hmm. and another persona in real life. You have to realize, What people see on your Facebook or Twitter or Instagram for, unless they see you every single day, that's what they think of you. You can say, well, that's not who I really am and, you know, that's just, I just tweet about those things because that's what, no, that's the conclusion they're making about you and as a pastor then you have to think that's the conclusion they're probably making about my church and already concluding, oh, people like me aren't there uh, or... Hey, people like me are there, and really, if we're honest, the unity that we have in the church is not around the gospel and the the truths of Scripture, but is around some socioeconomic or cultural or political thing.
0: Okay. Well, we should pray for God's wisdom in these matters, and um, that's a good point for us to to end on. Uh, As Kevin said earlier, if you're you're a member of a a local neighboring church, we'd encourage you to, to go there. We sure don't want to pull you... Uh, to our worship services tomorrow, um, so thanks for being with us this Friday evening and Saturday all day. Uh, we hope to see you next year, and, um, and for the rest of us, we'll meet back tomorrow, either 9 or 10.45. Um, I suppose you could do both, but try, maybe some of you can't, because we won't fit. Um, so anyway, <laughs> just keep that in mind. We will have overflow in the West Wing tomorrow in both services, because um, I'm sure some will, will come to both. Uh, but let's let's end with prayer and uh, thank the Lord for our time together this weekend. Oh Lord, we do pray for your help. We pray for wisdom. We pray for self control and discernment. We want to walk circumspectly in this world as we represent you to this world. As we've heard from your word this week, Lord, we want to be bold. We want to be courageous. We want to be Conquerors, um, of course, not conquerors who conquer people, but those who conquer the, the fight that is a spiritual one and one that is waged with the Word of God and one um, that is advanced with the gospel. And so we pray you'd make us bold and not afraid um, and yet gentle and humble and happy. I think of how Paul and Philippians. Uh, says that they'll shine like lights in this dark world if they just simply don't complain. So there's one way in which, Lord, we represent you well. We just refuse to complain. Help us, Lord. Uh, We pray for um, you to continue to apply these messages we've heard over the last couple of days, Lord. Continue for your word to bear fruit. We thank you for the implanted word. And um, and for our time together, Lord, we thank you for what we share in Christ. We thank you for the churches represented here. We pray for a good Lord's Day tomorrow as we assemble to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus once again. We thank you for him. We pray in his name. Amen.